Simon, today we are having Alex Blosser, cybersecurity researcher, currently working in the financial industry. And if I'm wrong in anything, Alex, please correct me. So hi, Alex, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Very, very glad to have you here. So Alex, I think that when I heard you lastly talking and presenting your research, I thought you are very fluent and intelligent. So that's why we also wanted to keep this discussion going and to have you here on the podcast as well. I'm very curious to hear maybe how you first got into cybersecurity, if you can let us know. Absolutely. Yeah. I was working a help desk of all things at an internet service provider and I got kind of recruited to the security team to help out with DNS changer malware back in the day. That was, uh, I think, 2011-ish. And 2011. I, I ended up going to um, a conference, MOG, Messaging Anti-Abuse Working Group. And uh, the industry was like, you know, relatively in its infancy at the time. But I knew that's where I wanted to be the rest of my career. Really? So you basically, it was like, would it consider it an accident you were there or you were not like, um, I would say, planning to go there? You just happened to be there and then you fell in love with uh, the industry or, you know? Yeah, that's kind of accurate. My boss was allowed to bring one of the people from the team and I think he thought it would be cool to bring the only woman. So it worked out. So like you liked what you heard there and you liked the concept and you started like learning from there and grow into it. Exactly. I really liked the people that I met there. But um, I think what really got my attention was it was one of the earlier presentations on Android malware. And uh, it was like really nascent at the time. And I knew nothing about Java, but it fascinated me. And that kind of piqued my interest to continue with it. That's awesome. So what was the original plan? What did that uh, distract you from? The original plan? Oh, man, if I had actually like stayed in school, I probably would have gone to law school. That's interesting. Very far from cyber. An investigative uh, mind, though. That's, uh, there is a pattern there. <laughs> you got it. Exactly. I'm very curious. You said the industry was in its early stages. And it's pretty fascinating because I got to speak a lot with people around what is the, even the, the cyber industry. Many people would consider it like a, a non-existing concept, like a bubble that will, at the end of the day, maybe blow. I, I'm not sure. Someone just told me like there was always like IT security, but no one really called it cyber. All right. So from your eyes, like, what's the big difference that this industry made in the last 10 years, let's say, ever since you, you saw it the first time in 2011 up until today? That's a really interesting question. There's a lot of facets to consider, but I don't think that the bubble is necessarily going to pop. I think that people have realized data breaches are inevitable and they uh, do hurt the bottom line, especially as legislation catches up and um, more laws are created to uh, penalize companies for negligence. So that said, I think that people are starting to take specialties a lot more seriously. It used to just be the IT guy who happened to have like a proclivity to cybersecurity. He would be the one fixing everything. And now we have people who specialize. Like, uh, I can't believe there are so many malware analysts these days. Like how many people, thousands of people have the GREM certification through SANS now. So it's uh, interesting to see it get more specialized. 
So you, yeah. you think that's that's what's changed the most is, is the depth of the knowledge and the people in general, the quality of the people involved, maybe more than the processes or, or technologies that are deployed to fight cybercrime? Well, certainly the processes and technologies have improved too as we get more familiar with it. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to industry collaboration. There wasn't really a whole lot of that more than 10 years ago. And now it's kind of the norm to have information sharing groups and kind of learn from one another. Definitely. It's not that I'm experienced in any other profession because this was the longest one I've been involved in. But I think it's pretty, pretty interesting to see that the information sharing within this cyber field, I would say, it's getting like larger and it's growing all the time. I think that COVID only grew it even more than it used to be. So in that matter, the last year or so made it even bigger. And I think that it's also kind of donates and uh, develops the, the industry even more because people like are not afraid to ask questions and get wiser from other people's uh, experience. Would you agree with that? You also like meet this kind of methodology in your daily work? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that as the industry kind of gets more diverse too, I think that people are asking the questions that otherwise would have um, kind of been <laughs> shoved under the rug, so to speak. So I think it's only going to get better now, especially with the distributed um, working environment, well, living environment, really. You mean like the hybrid work environment, like work and office and so on? Yeah. So I think before COVID happened, there was probably more chat happening, if not in the office, than at local meetups that are now happening, either not at all or they're happening remotely. So more people can participate. I think that's going to be a mainstay. I hope that doesn't go away because I've been a remote worker for a while and I love it. Same here. <laughs> awesome. So you do feel like this has stimulated diversity of well diversity of backgrounds diversity of, of ideas because it's lowered the barrier to entry now someone can become a cybersecurity professional pretty much no matter where they live they don't have to be you know, living in a region where it is a big thing or where security is a big thing that wasn't the case 10 years ago when you started i'm assuming you had to be in one of those centers of excellence or close to uh, those big companies to get into it Definitely. We've actually, I've seen some applicants for jobs like across the various places I've worked over the past year. And there's been people pretty much from all over, which is really exciting. Before it would have been primarily the hubs, like you said. I have a follow-up question for you too, actually, around information sharing. I wouldn't say just strictly intelligence sharing, but information sharing. I mean, I've worked in that space and I've worked in threat intelligence, but I've always wondered what's the most valuable thing you guys get out of sharing? Is it best practice sharing? Is it career guidance or, or just peer support? Is it purely and mainly technical operational value? What do you feel is the most valuable thing in, in sharing with others within your industry or, or across industry? I think that it really depends on um, who you're sharing with and for what purposes. So I think that my personal take on that is going to be, it's really nice to not just have, you know, indicator sharing is great, but indicators aren't the best way to detect threats. But I think just seeing that larger scale campaigns that otherwise would have seemed like, why are we being targeted by this? Just being able to see that others are targeted too and providing feedback on um, how to mitigate it is pretty priceless. Definitely agree on that. I think that 
the, I would say, recommendation sharing or the measures taken in different places. It, like, so I find it very enriching and uh, mind opening because what different organizations tend to cope with challenges a bit differently. And I think that you really leverage from hearing others' people advice, right? Because there are the, the trivial solutions for many problems, but you still get to hear a bit of different aspects of it and things that you didn't think about before. I, I think it's pretty helpful to, to get like people's advice from, from other people. So, Absolutely. So it's about contextualizing at scale. That's really the most valuable thing, right? Understanding where you sit in, in, in a bigger picture and having this additional bit of data and context which you can get on your own, so reducing blind, blind spots. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. Definitely. I have a question, Alex, about actual research. I mean, I don't want to touch like confidential points for sure, but as a senior researcher, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that you are more on the technical side of things, of course, together with threat intelligence driven things, driving things around. Still, what do you find the most interesting or fascinating about your job? Is it like getting to know the unknown and like reveal things that you haven't seen before? Uh, you, you mentioned the malware earlier. So you're mostly interested about getting to know like the most advanced ones or what do you like about it the most? Ah, that's a good question. I like getting to know whatever it is that's giving us the most headache, the most problematic <laughs> stuff. And sometimes it's really boring. It might be something really simple that we just can't really get a handle on because it would, you know, if blocking something might cause too much of a disruption to legitimate stuff. So um, what really interests me is kind of changing. I think I got kind of burned out from the threat intel side of things and I'm um, getting excited to learn like simpler things like automating and engineering and just scripting stuff out since that's kind of new to me. But yeah, I think uh, developing detective and preventative controls is always going to be pretty exciting because you know that you're actually making an impact on something. Definitely. And I think that considering the recent huge news around legitimate stuff turns out to be disruptive and, I don't know, like espionage-like things, making it even harder to, you said, detect, but really, how would you even approach it, this challenge, when you are like having supply chain attacks from purely legitimate things that you were using before? This is a huge headache, right? Yeah, it's a major problem. I don't want to take credit for this entirely because I was actually speaking with a vendor who I don't think has plans to do this per se, but something that like kind of caught my attention or came to mind was it would be really cool if somebody were documenting like the software development lifecycle on the back end that was a third party as opposed to just the company making it. So then we could kind of have a like chain of attribution for components that are added. And you could be like, hey, is this supposed to be looking up this weird AWS-like domain? Behaviors like that could have like accountability. But it sounds like a startup. Yeah, it really does. It sounds like Maybe. it would be a, a challenge, <laughs> you know, getting yeah. uh, companies to sign off on it. But it would probably be better than the alternative of having more stuff happen on the supply chain. 
For sure. I mean, this could be a huge startup if like companies agree to that, but it starts with regulation and, and standards, right? If companies really agree on that, then it would be standardized and people like would, would take it as it is. Because I think that if now someone really tries to tell a company, okay, we want to monitor how you develop things and so no one will really agree to that, right? It will be like uh, some kind of a spiral inside. Definitely. There have to be a lot of variables worked out to make it work. But I do think legislation would be the right step. Yeah. I really wonder how will it really affect in the long term? Because, I mean, a couple of months have already passed since even more, right? Three months, maybe, since SolarWinds was just uh, exposed to the public. And still, it's only in the early stages of investigations from the geopolitical perspective. It will take time until we hear like the real implications of all of it, rather than the impacted companies only and uh, so on. Yeah, the impacted companies who typically put out a very vague statement like, we have no evidence that <laughs> blank was compromised at this time. Yeah, that's interesting. Sorry, Simon, I interrupted no, you. Earlier. No, I think uh, I was, as you were talking, I was searching for the exact piece of legislation in question. But I think there is a debate going on right now about creating this audit trail around code. Most of the code now is, is just repurposed code from somebody else. There's not as much creative code writing as, as we'd like to think. And there is a debate going on right now in the U.S. around that. I forgot the name of, of the initiative. I don't know, maybe that, that sounds familiar to you, Alex. I see you shaking your head. I embarrassingly don't follow the news as well as I should lately. So that sounds really cool, though, and I need to look into it. Yeah, I'll research as we speak. Excellent. I'm not familiar with it as well, but it sounds interesting. I also try to avoid news sometimes. I can... Definitely understand it. I wonder, you've experienced more than one industry in terms of like the company you were working for, right? Do you see any major changes from one industry to another in terms of the, I would say, I forgot the word, the approach to cybersecurity? Because definitely when you're I don't know, defending, let's say, a supermarket on the one hand, and on the other side, you are defending, let's say, a reseller of televisions. They have the same process of buying stuff and reselling it, but I mean, they still defend different kind of goods. So is it really different like from one industry to another when you're speaking about cybersecurity? In my experience, I would say yes. I was on the MSSP side for a while. So I was servicing a lot of different clients everywhere. And I think that everybody has their own approach to things and their own maturity levels. So it's really interesting that there does seem to be a lot of um, consensus or agreement with industry peers that would kind of be... Um, unusual to those who are in a different industry or maybe just uh, something they hadn't considered. So kind of begs the question that maybe we should have information sharing groups that are a little uh, less industry centric at times, but at the same time, the same threats do tend to target those in the same industry. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to like usual cybercrime, I mean, it doesn't really matter what industry you're coming from because at the end of the day, it's this uh, exploit that everybody is 
haven't been patched for and everybody is getting targeted with the same one or a supply chain attack again that hits everybody. It's not always this, let's say, advanced threat actor, state-sponsored actor that is particularly interested in this and that industry or organization, right? Yes, I feel connected to this idea. I just had another question. Clearly, it's very important for you to understand the business you're protecting in order to anticipate you know, or understand your, your attacker's mindset. Do you think organizations give, not necessarily the one where you're working, I don't want you to, to necessarily comment on that, but do you think people in your position are giving enough information or enough time to interact with the rest of the organization to truly understand the business and to be in the best position possible to, to protect it? How valuable is it to understand the business, its process, its customers, for you to do your job efficiently? I think it's incredibly valuable and the amount of understanding that you get outside of your domain really just depends on the company and the culture. I've seen lots of extremes there. So that's something you'd you'd highly encourage, yeah, other to do. Definitely. Yeah. I'm big on getting into the attacker's mindset and seeing, huh, this seems exploitable, even if it's not a traditional exploit, but especially from a social engineering perspective, I think that's overlooked a lot. Yeah. The question that came to my mind when you said that is And it also connects to the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, like organizations are different from one another in terms of maturity as well. So when you have this mindset of, okay, these ones look exploitable, so an attacker might want to use it, so we should put an eye on that, we should change stuff. So maturity also is not only about getting to know that there are threats out there, but it's also about feeling accountable enough to make changes, right? And the bigger the organization, it's harder to change, I mean, and there is more bureaucracy. So, I mean, is it also a very, I would say, a major part of your work, like getting to convince and persuade others to understand the threat and change things? Yeah, I would definitely say that the percentage of my work that it is depends on how open the respective organization is to change. So it's varied a lot. Sometimes there are people who are, you know, evangelizing on the behalf of threat intelligence. So organizations that have a a well-connected risk management team, things like that. Yeah, I mean, organizations nowadays not only need like a good threat intelligence team, good pen testing security architecture and so on. I mean, the security teams also need to have, I guess, good rhetorics, right? Because at the end of the day, we need to persuade and really move things around. So the things that we are recommending or the threats we are pointing out will really make an impact and things will start moving. So it's pretty interesting because it's much more than I would say you would expect or the requirements on a job description will tell you that, okay, you also need to have good rhetorics and you have, need to have good uh, human qualities so people can hear what you're saying and, and convince them. Absolutely. I think that that's on pretty much every job rec that I've ever seen, but for how many people deliver or what percentage, that can vary. 
but I think security teams got a bad rep for a long time and we need to basically, we need to show up to other teams or at least have somebody who's like an emissary that can come and say, hello, we come giving you this in exchange for you doing whatever else. We come in peace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We need people who can come in peace. <laughs> so, so good communication and maybe new incentives for people to improve the security culture of an organization. I'm curious, uh, just, just as we speak, I have an idea. Why isn't there an enterprise-wide system in place similar to a bug bounty when, you know, before you're releasing a software, you're incentivizing people to you know, identify uh, uh, vulnerabilities. Why shouldn't any employee in a large organization be incentivized to identify exploits, especially social engineering exploits, and be rewarded for, yeah, flagging them, escalating that? You know, if, if you're working at the desk, you worked at a service desk, right? Yes. You're probably in a better position to identify social engineering vulnerabilities than a highly qualified, experienced engineer who is not exposed to that much uh, interaction with external parties. So uh, we think that would be that, that could work to incentivize people to be more aware, even outside of traditional information security, and protect their organization proactively. Absolutely. I love that idea. I hope that um, more organizations pick it up. I think that I've seen talk about it in certain organizations, and it's definitely an idea worth fostering. And I hope leadership gets on board with it, because usually it is just kind of people on the front lines who are coming up with ideas like that. It's also, I mean, for a little organization, let's say, that might be highly vulnerable, that could also be like... Um, a huge uh, headache, I would say, right? Because, because they are revealing themselves in one way or another to the so many threats and risks out there to them. And then they need to cope with them later. So I would think that many less mature organizations would like just to ignore the problem, right? And kind of put it aside and just hope for the worst not to happen. But I mean, at the end of the day, these organizations also, if targeted, lose the confidence of their clients and so on, because they were not prepared to such an attack. And I think that the last year has also taught at least me that it's not only about how you prepare, it's also how you cope with an actual incident, because I think that companies that know how to manage an incident as well as manage towards their clients, I would say, being very transparent and making sure that their clients are fully secure about and confident about their preparedness and I would say risk management and crisis management. They also get rewarded afterwards because they kind of win the confidence of their clients, even though there was like a huge, let's say, breach because they see that they're being treated in a good way, right? Yeah, for sure. I'm not sure uh, where the industry should head on that one, but it's a conundrum. Yeah, I have a, a bit of a hypothetical question for you. You've worked in threat intelligence as a researcher. You're now a SOC engineer. I mean, you really understand the requirements and understand what's a good customer for SOC, what's a good success criteria for SOC, how it all functions. Let's assume for a second you, you, you're starting a business, any business, I don't know, you're, you're 
growing and selling potatoes and your business scales up and you start making money and then you have a potato export division and you have, at what point of your growth, really starting from a very small business, do you feel like an organization should be, now's the time to build our own sock? Is there to you a trigger or precursor to you thinking, we really got to have our own, our own sock now? Oh, that's such a good question. There's a lot of very nuance. hard question. Yeah, that's that's why exactly. we, that's why I kept it simple with the business model of the potatoes. <laughs> I don't want you to worry about the business itself. It's booming. Everybody wants your potatoes. Uh, you're starting with one employee and one dollar in revenue. At what stage do you feel like now's the time? See, for me, it would be more like we're going to secure these potatoes as a service from day one. So it might be a different business model. Um, potatoes as a service, love it. I think it depends. It depends on what kind of threats they're seeing and how valuable these potatoes are. And I think it's worth trying an outsourced sock first, unless you happen to have the resources in-house. I think it's all about what security talent you're kind of starting with too. But probably at the point where you feel like you're... <laughs> One metric for me is when you see a security provider generating the same alert over and over again. And you're getting like, basically, even though you're paying them to triage it, it looks like the same thing is happening and it's not being resolved. That suggests to me that your SOC as a service may not be insanely effective. That's a interesting issue, I, I would say. I'm not sure everybody knows the answer to it, even ones that already, you know, established their own SOC or had uh, outsourced sock it's it's a pretty complex one but i guess that when you think that others want to get the recipe for how you grow your potatoes that might be the point where you feel like more threatened than before just to get like a cyber attack a ransomware attack that your antivirus can stop i would say that when you feel that the more advanced ones are against you that's a good time to start thinking security more seriously. But uh, again, not necessarily that it means that you need your own sock, right? Maybe an outsourced one works well. But maybe I'm not enough experienced in, in that field. I think it could be hybrid too. Maybe have your outsourced sock handling a lot of the alerts and have in-house talent developing controls for the more advanced ones. Although that could be kind of counterintuitive since the outsourced SOC might be a very advanced security company sometimes that has talent that you don't have. So I think it's different for everybody. After this conversation, people are going to knock on your doors, helping them to establish their SOC, I mean. I hope not. <laughs> I'm not ready. Maybe someday. So genuinely, how, how many years can you give to a SOC? Because I hear it's probably the hardest job there is out there. And, and most people, I mean, I'm not talking about yours in particular, but you hear that it's very hard to retain talent. It's very hard to, to manage fatigue because it's really, really hard work. It is. I think having a good organizational car culture to begin with is going to help retain talent. That's really crucial. And making sure that you're competitively compensating people. Just try to make sure people aren't looking for jobs is probably... <laughs> a good step in the right direction. Just, just block, block LinkedIn, maybe? Block it. <laughs> that would be uh, probably not the best move. <laughs> you can always say that's like a huge threat and 
infecting people's machines and so on. But yeah, it, it won't work. Yeah, it sounds a little like TikTok now, but... Yeah, <laughs> that's another problem. Yes. I mean, that's maybe one of the biggest challenges to, to cybersecurity as a whole, because it's not only that you always need to just aspire and aim to be smarter than your potential attacker, which is almost impossible to do, right? That's that's the biggest challenge to kind of foresee the next uh, move of the attackers. As you said earlier, oh, these ones look exploitable. Uh, we, we need to take care of that. But also that new threats are kind of emerging because of technology enhancement, the development of new social networks, instant messaging applications. It's not only the attackers, it's new companies, new organizations, new industries, new technology developments that just increase the the attack surface all the time, right? It's crazy to think that it doesn't even matter how successful the organization currently manages its threats and how successful it is with, let's say, patching vulnerabilities. In a year from now, if you are not agile enough, you wouldn't be able to really cope with new threats emerging, right? From new applications and and stuff like that. Yep. I think it's really easy for organizations to get behind if they're not agile enough with coping with all the emerging threats as they happen. So that's a really interesting point. I think that a lot of organizations inherit a lot of debt quickly and then don't know how to recover from that tech debt. Or maybe talent what, debt. So, what, what do you mean by recover from that? Basically, if you um, kind of have a deficit, like you're missing a coverage in a certain area in a security sense, I think that organizations might struggle to get caught back up if it's been missing for a bit. Or if they just haven't scaled it out as they're maturing and growing. I understand. And, and you quickly have to build institutional experience within all sorts of new fields appearing all the time and you have to find the talent to build that experience, that know-how. I mean, we're, we're all assuming that it's as simple as, I mean, we're not because we're facing it, but a lot of people assume, well, just get XYZ, you know, name the domain engineer and hire him and he's going to build it for you and in three months, it's, it's going to work. But well, it actually takes years to build knowledge within a company and, and retain it and, and, and ensure continuity if that person leaves. It's It's... As you said, that the term, yeah, knowledge or technology depth is is very adequate. Another problem is assuming that one engineer can solve a specific problem or build out a function. I've seen a lot of places thinking that's the case, and having tried to do it myself, I've realized it's not the case. I think it takes a village pretty much everywhere. I totally agree. More than everything. The conversation with you today, Alex, I've learned that it really doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter that you have a a good security team and you have the good engineer and the good uh, researcher, architect, and so on. But it also really depends how uh, mature is the uh, whole organization to security and how agile and flexible it is to really adapt to the new uh, developments in terms of risks and threats on it. I thought about it in the past, but I think that this conversation only, let's say, how you say it, I mean, 
the message is more, much more clear to me now. Yeah, it's, 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 it's much more challenging than building a, I mean, I'm having seen it done, I, I would say a sales function. It's not the same thing as uh, it takes a lot more ingredients and it takes the support of the rest of the organization as well. That's what, that's what we mean by culture. You're one twentieth of an enterprise and hard the other 19th supporting you and, and aware of the importance of what you do. Yeah, it's a company-wide uh, approach. It really is. And I feel for larger enterprises that are trying to kind of get caught back up because I think um, smaller organizations that are starting more recently just have a lot more flexibility to adapt in different areas. So I think it's going to be a lot harder for the bigger orgs. For sure. The ones that are left behind will probably have to experience the more severe incidents. Of course, I I do not wish anything to anyone, but I'm just saying that, yeah, you got to be very adaptive these days and everywhere. It's also for the employment market, I suppose. Um, uh, people are always told to, they need to all, all the time, let's say, invent themselves again and again. So I would say that companies should also be, as employers, in the same mindset when it comes to security, at least. And I would say, Simon, maybe you know better than me in sales as well, right? In sales and marketing, you always need to to rethink about your idea, to rethink about the way you market it and uh, think I mean, ahead and, and forward. I think the problem every industry has right now, <laughs> regardless of their business model, is that we're all working from home. Our window to the world is, is the screen we're, we're all staring at right now. And you're competing for attention whether you're selling software to a CISO or you're promoting something on Netflix or <laughs> you're posting content on the blog, we're all competing for someone's attention staring at the screen. That wasn't the case a few years ago. So yeah, everything now has to be attractive, has to be somehow simplified to get people's attention and retain their attention. You can go deep as, as you would like to sometimes with your message. And I think that's why it's such a confusing market for a lot of buyers as well, because every pitch sounds the same, because everybody goes after the same buzzwords, the same themes, because that's the only way to get people's attention for 20 seconds and hopefully get a chance to talk some more and explain what they're doing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough to be heard, whether you're <laughs> trying to be heard as a security uh, expert, practitioner within your organization or it's tough to be heard as a vendor. It's tough to be, uh, it's tough to be heard today. So much noise. Simon, I know that every pitch sounds the same, but I mean, you have to try my potato. It's really the best. <laughs> you just need to try and you'll be amazed. Yeah. I want potato as a service now that the concept <laughs> has been uh, invented. <laughs> Alex, I have one last question from my side. I know it's an annoying question to ask, where do you see yourself in 10 years and so on? So I won't ask it this way. I'm just asking, what do you want to do and whether you see yourself staying in cybersecurity? And if so, what positions are interesting for you? Ooh, yeah. The what do you want to be when you grow up question. I still love exactly. this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in my 30s, so I should probably be grown up by now. But I think that I, much like my career has been so far, in 10 years, I bet that what I want to be doing probably doesn't exist yet. 
I mean, maybe there's like the small inclination to want to start a business once I realize what I'm really good at. But yeah, more than anything, I think I just want to make sure that there's a good quality of life and that I have a good work-life balance and uh, I'm in a good environment for my family too. Um, I love your answer. US, a little scary these days. So, I really love your answer. That's things that many people tend to forget when uh, speaking about their career. I mean, yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's become more apparent over the past couple of years, I think, just uh, that work isn't everything. We need to take care of those around us and ourselves. Correct. I've got nothing to add to this. Thank you. <laughs> Alex, it's been uh, lovely. I, I really loved hearing and uh, speaking with you. I think I'm a bit wiser than I was 15 minutes ago after this call. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you again for having me. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Gilad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.